This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Sussex, where we are on the coast, some 12 miles to the west of Brighton. We are at a renowned public boarding school, Lansing College, which boasts among its alumni the novelist Evelyn Waugh, playwright Sir David Hare, and lyricist Tim Rice. Today, the college is co-educational, with 580 pupils from no less than 30 nationalities. We are in the college chapel, which was built on the grand Gothic scale in the 19th century and is the largest school chapel in the world with a 90-foot high wave. It dominates the countryside around and it's got the largest rose window of its kind in the country. It feels like being in a cathedral. On our panel, Penny Mordant, who's the daughter of a paratrooper, she was named after a frigate, unusually. However, the frigate was called HMS Penelope. She herself trained in the Royal Navy Reserve. Later, she navigated herself into the Westminster bubble, where she's now a minister in the Department of Work and Pensions. Diane Abbott became Britain's first black female MP now 30 years ago. A former civil servant and television producer, she's now Shadow Home Secretary. Charles Moore, former Telegraph editor, now one of its weekly columnists, is widely acclaimed as Margaret Thatcher's official biographer, now working on Volume 3. Last time you were on this programme, you were working on Volume 3. How much longer are you going to be working on Volume 3? Next year, next year. (laughs) Steve Richards is one of the country's foremost political columnists, broadcaster, author and stand-up humorist with his one-man show, Rock and Roll Politics. Much more fun than real politics, I guess. Well, the two are connected, actually, and they are, yeah, they can be fun and darkly tragic as well. (laughs) Which takes us your opportunity to welcome our panel. And to our first question, please. Hello, my name is Martin Sacri. Mrs May has just said, yet two more years. Is Brexit really worth all this bother? Penny Mordant. Uh, Well, as someone that campaigned to leave the EU, um, I think it is. And I think that if we, as a country, within the space of a a parliamentary term, have managed to hold a democratic referendum, decided on our future outside the EU, triggered Article 50, negotiated, agreed and legislated to leave the EU and have left, and have commenced trade negotiations with other countries uh, around the world... Uh, and have gained a bespoke EU-UK deal, all within the space of a parliamentary term, Uh, I think that is none too shabby. I know some people want to do this quicker, um, but I think what the Prime Minister set out today shows that people have been listening to what business have said. Uh, We've been working out the best way to do this, not just for ourselves, but also uh, for our European partners as well. And I think it is pragmatic and sensible, and as someone that uh, went against my Prime Minister at the time to campaign to give us this opportunity uh, to go out there and go global, uh, I am very pleased with what she set out today. Diane Abbott. You asked if Brexit is worth all this bother. 
I think it's really important to emphasise the importance of respecting the results of the referendum. It would be intolerable if so many people had come out and voted to leave the European Union if Westminster-based politicians simply ignored them. However, the issue is how we come out and what sort of Brexit. Is it a Tory Brexit? Or is it the kind of Brexit that the Labour Party wants to see, which is a jobs and economy Brexit? But just in relation to Theresa May's speech, as you might imagine, there's been this huge build-up to this speech all week. Now she's delivered delivered it. I find myself thinking, is that all there is? I mean, her big idea is that there should be a two-year transition. Well, let me let you into a secret. The Labour Party was saying that two weeks ago. I'm glad she's taken our idea, but why did she have to fly all the way to Florence to do it? Charles Moore. Well, of course, she certainly didn't have to fly to Florence, but she did do so for a reason, which is that she wished to explain, and it seemed the right setting, uh, that you, being a Eurosceptic doesn't mean that you hate European civilization or even that you hate the EU. And I think that's very important, and I thought her tone on that was good, because one of the great sadnesses of this argument is that both sides make a lot of cheap shots, and it's a sort of Nigel Farage type of thing to um, just say how frightful Europeans are and that sort of thing. And this is very important that it's not about that. Uh, it's about uh, reclaiming independence. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we're against European civilization, and it doesn't mean that we're against cooperation with Europe. And I thought she said that very well. Um, the only other thing I'd say on the two more years point, why is it two more years? And the answer should not really be blamed, I think, on those who are, um, wish to leave, but on those who wish to remain because they're throwing every possible obstacle into the way, whether it's a legal case, whether it's um, mucking around in the House of Lords, whether it's the quite extraordinary behaviour of your own dear corporation, Jonathan, uh, in the way they report this. Uh, oh, uh, no, uh, it's absolutely true. Um, have, have, have you noticed that when, whenever there's a business story on the BBC, they say, the profits of this company have gone up despite Brexit? It's, it's absolutely, um, it's, it's comical. It would be, it's, it would be it, for, it, just for a matter of fact, it, you're, of course, you're on this programme, and it's very good to have you on the programme. That's the nature of the BBC, all views are held. But it would be quite interesting for you to produce, you may be able to, chapter and verse for the number of times in which a BBC a business reporter or other has said the words that you attributed to the BBC. Uh, it, uh... I think the accusatory glance from Jonathan confirms the point I'm making about where he stands on all of this. I, <laughs> I, I'm, very, I'm very happy to do that. I mean, it's, it's very, very marked, and it was very marked today in the coverage of the negotiations that it was all the pressure from uh, the reporters and so on was on Mrs May. There's also important pressure to put... Of course, you should put pressure on Mrs May, but there's also important pressure to put uh, on Monsieur Barnier and on what the other lot are doing. What are they all saying? Why are they not giving uh, a, a bit of... Why is it always down to Britain to have to give at every moment in this negotiation? This, okay. this, uh, th this is not... 
this pressure is not put on by the BBC. So that is part of why it's taking a bit of a long time. Steve Richards. Well, just to answer that point, there is pressure on Theresa May because she triggered Article 50 and started the entire process. Um, but to go back to what I think is a very fundamental question, an important question, is it worth it? My answer is no. It is impossible <laughs> to overestimate and, and make sense of the political energy that is being sucked up by Brexit and although she was right today to say there will be another two, in, in effect another two years on top of the Article 50 timetable because she hasn't got time to do it all in that period, that does mean as the question implies another two years and we still don't know what form Brexit will take and to sort of prove the point, if you substituted Brexit with, say, a, an issue that we all would agree in this hall is of urgent importance, like the NHS and elderly care, say, if we all as a country had decided after a referendum to focus on that, imagine what could happen if you had three government departments set up especially to deal with it, every programme assessing every development along the way, you would at the end of it have an extraordinary tangible improvement in the quality of everybody's lives. And at this point, neither Penny nor Charles, both enthusiastic Brexit advocates, can guarantee that. Um, we still, as I say, from Theresa May's so-called landmark speech, have no idea what form that will okay. take. So, Let's um, pick up very clearly, it's, to me, it's a waste of time. <laughs> To, to tease out Martin Sacre's question, let's pick up one or two of the specific aspects of, of the speech. The EU citizens living in the UK, uh, has what she has said uh, of welcoming um, and uh, offering the British courts to be trusted to interpret the rights of EU citizens here, um, uh, and they could refer, she says, to the, take into account the judgments of the European court, should that settle the issue in your mind, uh, Diane Abbott? I don't think it will. And first, let me say, I do hope Charles Moore's not going to spend the entire programme attacking the BBC. That... Um, but on, on what she said about European citizens, I mean, she's saying that they will have exactly the same rights as they have now, but that won't be true in terms of bringing their families in and if you look at the leaked Home Office document, this reveals a regime for EU citizens which will make them feel, in my opinion, most unwelcome. And yet, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's social care, we rely on EU citizens. And I believe the way that Theresa May and, and Brexiters have tried to make EU citizens a bargaining chip in their negotiation is quite wrong. The can we, Labour can we... Party would guarantee their rights as of now. And would, you, would the Labour Party, as the European Union has been insisting through, through Monsieur Barnier, um, that the European Court of Justice should be the ultimate guarantor of any agreement? Well, you... You have you you understand why he's saying that? No, that's not my question. The question is no, a very no, clear no. question. We, Sorry, we would, it's, it's, to, <laughs> we would have to give reassurances because the last thing the 27 EU countries 
want is for the rights and liberties of EU citizens here to be at the mercy of British politicians. And do you believe that that, that, uh, that the courts, the British courts, which have an international reputation, cannot so be trusted? It's whether the 27 EU countries will accept that. Just to the practicalities, the EU has said, Charles Moore, very clearly that the that the European Court, which is a red line for, for the Prime Minister, is, has to be the final arbiter. Prime Minister is saying it's the British courts. Uh, it's a fundamental issue before there can be progress. Has she done it, do you think? Uh, I think she's, she's handled this bit sensibly, but funny enough, I agree with the opposite side of the argument about the basic point here, which is that I think she should have conceded the rights of the existing EU nationals straight away before any of these negotiations. It shouldn't have been part of the negotiation because it's given a lot... Because it's given a lot of EU EU nationals in this country. It's made them very unhappy and doubtful when they have... There there should be no reason for that. It should be an absolute right. And remember, this is all reciprocal because it affects British nationals in the EU. Um, This should have been cleared right out of the way and just accepted right from the start. On the European Court point... I think Mrs. May is right. You cannot have this ultimately decided by the European Court of Justice because it's a British matter. By all means, we need to uh, discuss it and uh, negotiate it with uh, Europeans, but ultimately the the whole point of leaving is that our own courts are supreme, and that mustn't be compromised by the ECJ. Steve Richards. I think on that point, actually, in fairness to her, she said it wouldn't be the British Court either. It 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 was another vague part of her vision, which is, I think she said, there would have to be some negotiation, some new independent body would preside over it. But In, in but the speech, she, she said, in the speech, said, I want the UK courts to be able to take into account the judgments of the European Court of Justice with a view to ensuring consistent interpretation. On this basis, I hope our teams can reach firm agreement quickly. Yeah, well, I don't think she will get much progress from the EU side on that. And this is part of the problem, really, that these detailed negotiations are, or propositions, actually, are being put forward months into the um, post-Article 50 timetable. The sequence should have been the other way around from every perspective. She was stronger before the election earlier this year, and she was in a position then, I think, to shape and go into some detail as to how she saw this developing. She didn't. And she's doing it now months later in a position of weakness. Um, The context of British politics has been transformed by that early election debacle. And I think that it's very dangerous to see this speech in a kind of vacuum. She looked very prime ministerial when she delivered the speech because a speech is a perfect kind of platform to convey authority, but the wider context of a hung parliament a ticking clock in the form of this Article 50 deadline. Um, And the European Union, still with its own very rigid, actually, in some respects, set of um, criteria. I mean, all of this is still to be worked out with time running out. But just on this particular point, um, Minister, is it the final position of the Prime Minister that the decision rests with the British courts over whether what the uh, security and rights of EU citizens here would be, but that they can take into account the judgments of the European Court. Is that the final position? 
Yes, and I should mean, it be? The, there is clearly a negotiation uh, on, on these points. And I, um, I, b before this programme, I was looking at the response on Twitter from, from key players uh, in the negotiations, and the response is encouraging. Um, I actually was on the, the other side of the argument. I had uh, originally said um, last year that we should guarantee uh, EU citizens' rights uh, straight off. Um, Theresa May has tried to do that in her Lancaster speech and set out where we would like to get to. But I think she has been proved right and I have been proved wrong on this. And we want to get a reciprocal relationship for our, for our own citizens. And I think that is vitally important. But the other thing is that we, we really do need to ensure um, that uh, the British courts can... Uh, that powers are brought back to those courts. The, it is incredibly important from a, a human rights uh, perspective that we restore the primacy of international humanitarian law. Uh, sub subsequent judgments from Europe have undermined that. But the fact and, remains, and that, does, it not, uh, does it not remain that if the Prime Minister sticks to her guns on the role in relation to the EU citizens living here, that the British courts are final arbiters, and the EU insists that it must be the European court. You have unpass, and you can't get through this crucial early stage to get on to talking about longer-term trade deals. Well, this is what the negotiations are, are all about. And so part she, can move, of, she can move if they part move. Part of the objective, you, sorry, I think, can, today. Can they, can, are you saying the Prime Minister can, that this is, that is a negotiating stance, not a bottom line for her? Well, I think it, I think it is a bottom line. I mean, clearly nothing is agreed till everything is agreed in, in these negotiations. But I think the response that I've seen to the speech is this has achieve one of the objectives, which is to move this on. Uh, you've had the negotiators saying, well, we, let's talk on Monday, let's see some concrete proposals uh, on these issues. And I think it is absolutely right. I would really love to uh, give EU citizens and our own uh, citizens uh, resident in the EU the reassurances they need to get on and plan for their lives. This is really important, and we can't do it soon enough. OK. Let's, let's go to the, to the, to the destination, because... You only have a transition agreement if you have a destination, because otherwise I don't know where you're going. Um, Steve Richards, Prime Minister made it very clear that on the one hand, they did not want a Norway-type deal, and they didn't want the, uh, the Canadian free trade deal, but something bespoke somewhere in between. The EU seems to, seems to say, at least through the person of Mr Barnier, that that option is not available. Yeah. How did you read the possibilities of reaching a destination from the warm words she, um, powerful warm words she expressed? Yeah, no, you're right. She did uh, tonally, as indeed as most of her contributions have been, have been well judged and warm. It's, it's the substance that is the problem. And it's not at all clear what kind of deal will be available to the... As she ruled out every option, I thought she might say, and therefore I've decided we should remain in the European Union. Um, and that would have created a few waves um, this afternoon. She probably wouldn't be Prime Minister now if uh, she had uttered those words. But it is not at all clear what uh, arrangement... She, she's looking for a bespoke deal that is without precedent, and it's not clear that the European Union is willing to deliver on it. And this will be the uncertainty. I mean, in a way, she's kicked this into the sort of medium term now by outlining a two-year transitional arrangement. But is, but is that, sorry, that is, means is, that, it's is not, that medium term? Because don't you have to have that in place before a transitional arrangement? Well, uh, you probably do, although 
Um, whether it will be or not is not at all clear, or what form it will take uh, isn't clear either. And I don't think she knows. Diane Abbott. I met with Barnier, the chief negotiator, with Sir Keir Starmer, who's our Brexit spokesperson, and of course the leader of the party, and he was very clear. There is no kicking the, the question of EU citizens into some medium term. We have to make sufficient progress on three things. One, the Northern Ireland border. Two, how much money we're going to pay. And three, EU citizens. And until we have made sufficient progress around now, October, there will be no going on to discussions but about on, trade. On the, on the question of discussions about trade, you discussed the other point. We knew that was in yeah. the earlier stage. Is it your view that you have a, a better understanding of the position? She sort of said we, talked to, we want to have a great partnership. We're going to be free I in the world. But we want a real are we on the way? I, I don't have a better understanding. A lot of warm words. She's conceded the point that Labour was making about a two-year transition, and that is it. And that she was going to have to come up with much more concrete proposals before she's going to be able to move on. Penny Mordant. Well, I think we need to see this in the context of the negotiations. Um, this is not like you know, choosing a settee, you want it this shape, you want this fabric on it, and uh, you, this is an actual negotiation, uh, and it, it won't be until the end of the negotiations that we, uh, we know exactly where we're ending up. But what the Prime Minister's job is to do is to set out uh, what we're looking to achieve, the broad principles uh, in which we uh, wish to operate, and the things that are important to can, us. Can you, can you, can you, I think this is quite an important point. The, if you just set out the broad objectives uh, and don't get any further than that before the 29th of March 2019, you can't go into a transition period. You have to have that settled yeah. in detail before... Yeah, uh, but, and that actually means, for most people, say that it means in a year's time but that, it has to be settled. But that is also going uh, along in, in tandem. So there are uh, enormous numbers of papers that have been produced over the summer on a whole raft of issues, uh, some of which um, uh, Diane has mentioned. There's also um, gratuitous detail. I, in my job, look after the health and safety executive. I, uh, if you've got nine hours, I can tell you what I'm doing on how we manage chemicals. Um, you know, there is a huge amount of work uh, going on behind the scenes in every department um, to ensure that we are ready to exit and also to put forward uh, positive, proactive proposals on those key meaty issues. So that is going on. But I think what we have to do, because this is not just you know, a, a handful of people in a car, to use that analogy, we're taking the country and with you're us. And you're all in the back seat to, now, we're all in the front seat. We need to communicate this to... To uh, business, to uh, everyone who has an interest, so they can contribute as part of this process. And that, that is the job of the Prime Minister. And uh, she's set out uh, more certainty today on certain principles. She's repeated things because they need repeating. We're not staying in the single market. We're not staying in the customs union. Uh, and I think uh, she has actually helped uh, change the mood uh, of the negotiations, judging by the initial response. Charles Moore. Uh, Steve said that um, Mrs May was seeking a, a trade deal without precedent, as if that was a stupid thing to do. But in fact, it's a sensible thing to do because the situation of Britain is different from other countries. So uh, Canada has a different type of deal, which has just arrived at with the EU from Norway, uh, which again has a different one from Switzerland and so on. And that is, in fact, entirely 
reasonable way to behave. And Mrs. May's point is that this is a unique situation because we already have all the EU legislation, and in the withdrawal bill, it's all being incorporated. So we're already working together. And then the, a tra can a trade deal, she's asking, be based on that? Now, that seems to me a completely reasonable way uh, to behave at this stage. Whether it'll come out in the wash is another matter because the trouble with dealing with the European Commission on this, particularly the Commission as opposed to everybody in the EU, is that they have a sort of rigid theology about this and they're terrified of conceding what they think is a sort of great religious principle um, about the nature of trade. Charles, are you one of those who, if in a year's time or so, it's clear there isn't the possibility of securing a deal, who believes that fine, no deal is better than the deal that you haven't got. Yes, I, I certainly am, because um, there's no point in, if you think about it, how could it be a good idea to make a bad deal? Um, the, there is a, a thing called the World Trade Organization, which uh, runs all trade in the world, and we're all in the World Trade Organization, every EU country is in the World Trade Organization, and we're all subject to World Trade Organization rules. And if we don't get a reasonable agreement from the European Commission, we can fall back on that. And it's only if we have that bottom line that we can negotiate, because everybody's always looking for your opponent's bottom line. Okay. And, and, and that is what I, I fear Mrs. May is not very strong on. She's, not, she's feeling... She did repeat the position, but I think she's uneasy about it, and, um, and I worry that that's going to be pushed. Another question that came in from Jason Lee. We had a host of questions, which is why I'm sort of summarising them. And this is from Jason Lee. If we find more people are against Brexit, would it be possible to stop it. And there was a poll, as it happens today, in The Independent, for the first time that suggests that in that one poll, 52% of the public back remaining in the EU, while 48% would support leaving. That poll has been showing a closing of the gap. And it has a... Is that... In, in, political, in political reality, uh, Steve, is it possible to, as it were stay in, as this questioner asks? I think it is. I think it will be very difficult, but I don't think it's impossible because if a growing number of people see a cliff's edge, and we, this discussion has been really interesting. We've had this keynote speech, and yet, if you listen, it's all speculative about what form a trade agreement would be, even if it's perfectly legitimate, as Charles suggests, to seek a unique one. Um, and if it comes clear, and there would have to be many, many more opinion polls, and it would be driven by public opinion and not politicians, I think it is possible that one of the options that surfaces in this period of vague options all over the place is to stay in. Briefly, Minister, is it possible, if there was a big shift in public opinion, if, 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 if there was a big shift in, in public opinion and it was clear there had been that shift, for whatever reason, would it be possible for, for the government to say, well, we made that decision one way or another, the mood of the country is clearly different, we have to be able to establish whether or not people really want still to leave? No, the majority? it's not. Um, so there's lots of polls that are done every week saying all sorts of things. We had a referendum. We had a democratic vote. Uh, we put it to the country, and uh, the country voted to leave. We then triggered uh, a formal process um, that set out very clearly uh, to leave. And at the end of these negotiations... The choice is, it's not, it's not that, you know, SETI that you want to design in a, in a catalogue. It is 
It is the deal that we negotiate or no deal, and we fall back on the, the world trade. That is the process that we are that we are locked into. And I think we need to start getting a bit more positive about this. this okay. There are some tremendous opportunities for us with a bespoke deal, and we should have a bespoke deal. We have an, a completely unique relationship with our European partners on this. OK. Look, uh, masses of tweets here. Here's one. We should have a referendum about having a referendum <laughs> on a transitional deal before a referendum on a final deal. Um, I think we can move on from there, because I really... Do you really want to come in, Dan? There is a way to get a very different type of Brexit, and that is to get rid of the Tories and elect a Labour government. <laughs> you may have thoughts on any of this, which we've discussed quite extensively so far. We'll doubtless be discussing it again. The Any Answers number 03700 100 444 after the Saturday broadcast of this programme. Anita Anand will be in the chair and waiting for your calls and for your emails. Any.answers at bbc.co.uk Hashtag BBCAQ is for tweeting and you can follow us at BBC Any Questions as indeed I know you are. To our next please. My name is Roger Wood. Who is more mentally deranged? Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un? <laughs> the former called the latter a mad, mad man, and the other retorted that uh, he would definitely deal with, he had some rather dramatic ways in which he would definitely deal with, the mentally deranged Donald Trump. It's obviously a really serious issue, but there's, put it mildly, a strange language going on. Diane Abbott. Um, well, that's a tricky question. Um, it is actually quite depressing to see international relations carried on at this level. And it's even more depressing when you remind yourself that Donald Trump is the President of the United States and what some people would regard as the leader of the free world. This is no way to conduct debates between sovereign nations. And I only hope there are forces in America that can even at this stage get Donald Trump to communicate in a much more sensible, much more dignified, and much more appropriate way. Charles Moore. Well, I agree in one very small way with Diane Abbott, which is I think that the way Donald Trump puts it is wrong. The famously, Teddy Roosevelt, one of the great American presidents, said the way to conduct foreign policy is to speak softly but carry a big stick. And uh, Donald Trump, if anything, is doing the exact opposite, um, which is not a clever way to do it because it makes everybody frightened without actually achieving an effect. However, please, let's just remember, there is really quite a big difference between... North Korea and the United States of America. I don't think I need to labor the point, but there really is. And Diane just referred to something called debates between sovereign nations. This is not a debate. Kim Jong-un is firing off, he's breaking the International Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and firing off uh, missiles that could be nuclear missiles. It's an unbelievably provocative and dangerous and crazy thing to do. And it's absolutely right 
uh, for Donald Trump to condemn it, though, as I say, I think he's done it in the wrong language. And it worries me very much that previous American presidents, Bush and Obama, allowed this proliferation and allowed Kim Jong-un to get so far. And it also worries me, perhaps even more, that China, which is, after all, the main power behind North Korea, has exercised such a small discipline on it. And this is really one of the, the really extraordinary thing about it. China has it completely in its power to prevent North Korea tomorrow without any act of violence from any of this. And it hasn't. And since China has on the whole become a more responsible um, and prosperous and sensible country in recent years, this really is a piece of international responsibility that it needs to look at very, very fast. Just on that, the, 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 there are a lot of the sort of the, the, the Sino hands and the hands of the specialists in the area mm. say that one of the reasons for China being very cautious about this is because they're terrified of the consequences of a complete implosion yeah. of, of North Korea, which would be catastrophic from China's point of view. Yeah, uh, uh, that's absolutely right. But it, they have it in their power to uh, avert that. Um, and they seem oddly, because China loves clamping down on small countries, but for some reason it hasn't done that with North Korea. And I think the challenge to them is a reasonable one to put. Penny Mordaunt. Well, I think if we, if we lift our eyes from Brexit and the immediate things that we are focused on um, and we look at what China is faced with at the moment, China is in real difficulties. It's got some really severe economic problems. It's got problems just feeding its population. And I think the, the questions that, that Charles raised, I agree with what Charles has said, um, and the answer to this problem really lies uh, with China. Uh, Donald Trump made it a major part of his election campaign to uh, say he was going to have a trade war with China. And what is happening uh, in North Korea makes China extremely relevant uh, to uh, US foreign policy. Um, I say this not to depress you or, or worry you. Um, I say it to try and cheer you up on a very serious matter because there is a political solution to this. Uh, and it, it lies in... China's situation at the moment, I think, and the difficulties that that country is going well, through. Very briefly, without going into great detail, what, what would you have China do now that would arrest the threat of uh, North Korea? Well, I don't think much happens in North Korea uh, without uh, China knowing about it. And there has been a lot of speculation as to what China has enabled to happen. Uh, uh, I think it would have been very difficult for North Korea to get as far as they have uh, with developing this technology without uh, uh, China uh, allowing that. So um, I, I don't think it is in uh, anyone's interest um, that, that this continues. And what do you um, think of the President's language, the President of, as um, Dan was mentioning, regarded as the President of the free world? Well, I, I uh, People in wouldn't... America sometimes talk about him as they do say. I've Anyone who's been to America hears it amongst relatively informed people. The man is, I mean, they don't put in exactly, so he's off his trolley. Well, there, there are, um, he's Marmite. Uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say he's Marmite in, in America. Do you like there Marmite? are some people that, uh, I, I've never been fond of Marmite, but the, there are some people that uh, love his, his stance, there are some people that loathe it. And I, I uh, am very sorry that um, uh, Amer American politics, and it, it was getting this way before Trump, is, is so uh, divisive. Steve. It's very interesting. Uh, most uh, politicians I've met. Uh, are much more interesting and complicated than the caricatures. And Charles Moore's books on Margaret Thatcher are a vivid example of that. And yet with these two, the caricatures are apparently all there is to them, um, which is wholly alarming. You look 
for some nuance, some subtlety in uh, these two dark cartoon characters and none surfaces and um, therefore uh, leave it to China to sort out. I mean, he, he's, uh, the, the sooner Trump distances himself from this whole thing, um, the better because unless there are hidden dimensions which have not surfaced in uh, the period he has been so publicly prominent, he is wholly unsuited to deal with this apparent other darkly comic caricature in North Korea. You can't do that because America guarantees the safety of South Korea and it would be complete dereliction of America's duty to have, uh, to have nothing to do with that. It's absolutely crucial that America gets this right and that China gets it right. And though I agree with the, some of the foolishness of what Trump says, I don't, I don't actually believe uh, that you can't trust America on this point. And it's been noticed that a whole load of perfectly sane and experienced generals have gradually come into the White House and got closer around his chair, and I tend to think they roughly know what they're doing about this. We had a large number of questions on this. It's obviously in many people's minds, even if they don't follow the detail closely, there is an underlying fear that this in some way could catastrophically escalate. Given the consequences on both careers, let alone what happens more widely, do you think that either side goes back to the question about being deranged, or do you think both sides actually are quite sane enough in the end to avoid anything more than a horrible war of words? I can't possibly say about North Korea. I think in the case of the United States, it's a very, very resilient um, and sophisticated system, uh, and I have absolute confidence that they're not going to do something crazy. Thank you. Any answers? 03700 100 444, and our next question. Hello, Stephen Rhodes. What amount of public good is required from a charity, and do private schools like this deserve that charitable status? Steve Richards. Well, with every respect to those hosting this evening, I don't think they do. I've always been suspicious of the framing of debates around so-called elites. It's one of the things that got us into the whole Brexit mess. Um, It's a myth that there are these sort of cocooned elites that take decisions in politics and elsewhere in Britain. Uh, However, there is no doubt there is a primrose path to uh, the powerful positions that some hold, and it begins in wonderful schools like this, then Oxbridge and all the rest of it. And it seems to me that it doesn't merit charitable status. And the issue of the uh, cocooned privilege that begins in wonderful places like this school is one I think we do need to address. That the cocooned privilege... You could, as it were, make the cocoon less comfortable. The cocooned privilege flows from the fact that people have the money to pay for private schools. You don't wish to remove the right of people to send their children to private schools. Well, that's a slightly different debate, but we're looking now at whether charitable status should be extended or or should be removed from uh, private schools, and I think it should be. Um, I'm going to ask Diane about the same question, so I'd better ask you the same question too. Do your children go to private schools or state schools? Uh, They have been to both in their time. (laughs) Diane Diane Abbott. Um, As the world knows, my son went to a private school for secondary school. 
um, he went to City of London. And as it happens, City of London doesn't have charitable status, the clues in the name. Technically, City of London is a local authority school. Um, and actually, I agree with Stephen on this point. I don't believe that private schools should have charitable status. And you wouldn't have this debate about what amount of public good and so on. Okay. Um, Charles Moore. Um, it's very important not to nationalise what we mean by charitable status. Britain has a wonderful tradition, which goes back much earlier than other countries, of working out uh, charitable purposes. And in the Elizabethan times and ever since, the chief definitions have been education, religion, and care for the poor. And this has been delivered um, by innumerable different groups of people. And most, though not all, of the great public schools were founded... Uh, to, to deliver religion, education, and, in fact, care for the poor, because most of them began uh, as birth, as basically as bursaries. And over the years, um, richer people, because the schools were good, started to send their children there. But the core function was, uh, was education, and it remains education. Even if it's educating rich people, it's still education, and it's still a virtue. This school in which we're sitting now, Lansing, I think was very much designed to produce Christian education for a very wide range of people. Um, if you were to cut all this off, uh, you would just be harming good institutions. I think a lot of people think that public schools make profits and that they, the teachers run off with it or something, or that it's, you know, it, all, it all goes into foreign bank accounts. It's absolutely not the case at all. Um, it goes into the school and the school alone. Uh, and I think it's very important to maintain that. A good trend, however, that's happening now is that schools are understanding that they do have a wider duty, as well as to their direct pupils, and they are going back much more to bursaries than they used to. And so at Eton, for example, which I attended, I was a scholar there, so I was there on £74 a term, uh, when I think the, the bill is now about £15,000 a term. £1, a term. Um, but uh, now I think about a, a fourth, uh, uh, about a quarter of the pupils there are now on bursaries. Same, same so it's moving, and they also sponsor okay. other schools. So they, they, they mentor and help to pay for uh, academies. So the, the, the educational benefit Charles. of the whole public school sector is enormous, and it is charitable, and, it should, and so it should remain. E e even, yeah. even Stevens. <laughs> same question for you as well. It's a bit like, it's a, I'm afraid it's a bit like the did you ever take drugs question. Yes. Um, do your children if you, uh, go to state schools, private schools? No, they went to private schools, yeah. Right. Uh, Penny Morden. Well, conveniently, uh, I don't have any children. I have four cats. Um, <laughs> but I attended a comprehensive school. I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I've always taken the view uh, that you don't uh, help uh, schools that I attended uh, and pupils in those schools um, by stopping good things happening elsewhere. Um, I think that the charity sector, uh, Charles has given a brief history uh, of, of how it was formed, but the charity sector is evolving all the time. And actually for the first time, um, incredibly, uh, we're setting up a uh, a centre of excellence to really look at charities and how they develop. But I think we, we can't uh, get into uh, debates about um, what kind of uh, institutions and whether 
privilege is involved in it at all. Uh, we have a really good regulatory body in the Charity Commission to decide who can be a charity and, and not. And I think if you meet those criteria, um, you should be able to set up a charity. Thank you. Any answers once again? 03700 100 444. We can squeeze in one more, which comes from Twitter. We get lots of Twitter questions and we welcome them and Twitter comments. John Sharman's question is, does Uber deserve to have its licence rescinded in London? Transport for London has done that, saying that for various reasons it's not a fit and proper uh, means of conveying uh, passengers. Three and a half million a day, apparently, 40,000 drivers. Um, does Uber deserve this, do you think? Diane Abbott. Yes, it does. And um, people going on about Transport for London and the regulation, the Tories have made regulation a dirty word. What Transport for London, as the regulator, has done is pointed out safety issues, issues about reporting incidents, issues about vetting their drivers, and also there's an overall question about the way Uber sought to get out of the fact that in reality it employs these drivers by claiming that it, it's just running an app. Uber can, can appeal and it can also take the opportunity to work with its regulator to do some of the things TfL has asked it to do, to have a fairer and more responsible approach to the men and women over 40,000 that work for it. And if it does those things, it can be back on the road. Thank you. I'm afraid it, it has to be very brief because we're just about um, out of time. Charles. This, is, this ban on, attempted ban on Uber is a tremendous attack on freedom and on young people. It makes an absolutely massive difference to young people getting around the capital that they, that they can afford it. And um, this is just an attack by older people re-establishing a monopoly. Uber, Uber is far from perfect, but I think it's disgraceful that it would be banned. Penny Mordant. Um, so I shall be dull and say this is a, a quasi-judicial uh, decision by a licensing uh, body so we, uh, and there's a legal process going on. But I think it would have been better um, to tackle uh, the issues that black cab drivers were facing. Their costs are, are massively high and I think there, was, there would have been some things that could have been done to assist them the cost of their vehicles and, and, and other things um, that would have helped uh, alleviate some of the, the situations. Um, but I think whatever you think of the decision, to, to make this decision uh, with only a few weeks to go before the licence falls with 40,000 jobs at stake is, uh, is rather irresponsible. Steve Richards. I think the technology that Uber uses is great. I think that the... I use it quite often, to be honest. Um, but... Like Diane, I'm a massive fan of regulation. And so the issue and the challenge is for companies like Uber to rise and meet the demands of the regulators. And if they do that, I hope they continue and I hope others come into the same market as well. And if you're going to ask me, do you use it? I use it. And I think it's a life-enhancing technological innovation. But... It needs regulating, and there is nothing wrong with regulators intervening to ensure that standards are met. I, I didn't need to ask you if you'd use it, because you'd already said you used it. Oh, right, I thought I was going to be asked again whether my children no, I, used I, it. I, I, <laughs> ah, now I did, 
I did want to ask whether your children use it, but unfortunately you haven't got time to answer to reach the end of the programme. Um, next week we're going to be where we're we going to be in uh, Penworth. I'm sorry, folks there, if I've mispronounced you, as it were, Lancashire um, at All Hallows Catholic High School. Amongst others, Rory Stewart, the International Development Secretary, will be on the programme. But from here, in this magnificent, I was going to say cathedral, but I have to say school college, Lansing College, goodbye. I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.